unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing? I'm good, Nathan. How are you today? I'm doing good. And today we've got a treat for the listeners. We've got you at the end of last week's show, you were talking about one method for getting better at copywriting. And you said that sometimes breaking down the structure and figuring out what each piece of copy is there for, what the goal of that piece of copy is, what the, what the job for that piece of copy is. Um, and we're going to do kind of a, a more free-flowing conversation. Neither of us have notes for this one. But um, I thought that this would be a great topic. And uh, you, promised, you promised that you would let me indulge this, this uh, little fantasy of mine this week. So that's what I'm hoping that we can get into. I promised, and you know, as I said in all of my campaign literature, promises made, promises kept. All right, awesome. So um, let, let's let's before we get into each piece of uh, of the sales letter, let's kind of talk about why this is important. Why a, a lot of people they they talk about or they uh, they promote templates, and they say um, this is the flow of the letter, and this is what you should do. And they don't really talk about, they don't really get into why, why there needs to be a certain flow, why there needs to be a certain pattern, why certain things need to come before other things and why certain things lead into other things. Why is it important to have an understanding of what each piece of copy is supposed to do in order to write an effective sales letter? Okay, that's a good question. So, you know, my mind went right to food. I mean, Let's say, because I, I did work as a busboy in a restaurant once, and um, let's say you go to a white tablecloth restaurant, and you know you sit down, and maybe maybe the chef decides the menu for you. So first you get an appetizer, and then you get a salad, and then you get a main course. And if you're not yet gluten-free like I am. Maybe you get some bread on the side with some butter. And then maybe you get some wine to, to go with your meal. And then when that's all finished, you get dessert. There's like a sequence. And there's sort of, I don't know what, the, I mean, there are people who could know this stuff in depth, but there's a purpose for each one. The appetizer, I suppose, is to open up your appetite and maybe the salad is to cleanse your palate. I don't really know. And the entree is to like give you some nourishment and dessert is to leave you in a sweet mood when you leave. Let's say that's scenario one. <laughs> scenario two, you go to a restaurant, sit down, they put this giant metal pot and they just throw the appetizer and the soup and the salad and the main course and the dessert in there and they stir it up and they say here's your dinner <laughs> sort of like prison right even in prison they separate the uh the the different courses and on the trays so it's worse um so that's the problem with the way not only a lot of people approach teaching copywriting, but a lot of people approach doing it. They 
they wait till the last minute when you know the the tension and and the fear are at their peak, and they say, "Oh shit, okay, oh, 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 I got to do this," and then they just start writing. And you know what? Sometimes it works, but the stress and the uncertainty that it will work are just way too high. And I think one reason they do that is they don't understand what each part of the copy is supposed to do. They know that there's supposed to be a headline and a lead and story and bullets and offer and this and that, but they're just sort of doing it by feel. And, you know, some writing works better when you do it by feel, but it's it's kind of good if in the back of your mind you know where you're going and and what it's supposed to do. I I have another episode I'm working on that this kind of ties into, but it's it's going to be um a slightly different angle. It's about something Gene Schwartz, who wrote Breakthrough Advertising, said about how copy is assembled. It's not written. Don't think of yourself as a writer. You're assembling copy. And so we'll I think we'll drill down much more nitty-gritty than we're going to today. But I think what we're going to talk about today could be more important for, for most people. Because I think when when you get right to it, most, you know, well, if you walked up to someone in the street and you say, what's a headline supposed to do? They'd probably either turn away or slug you in the jaw. But <laughs> if if you walk up to a copywriter and ask them if they're in a, a receptive mood, they might not really be able to tell you. And so, yeah, I, I think this is a great idea. But since it's not your idea, but since I'm indulging you, why don't you indulge me and start? Well, I, I do want to say just before we get into it, there are the two different approaches. I've heard that Stephen King, when he writes a book, he just lets the book take him where it wants to go. Um, I am not a fan of that. And maybe it's because I'm a copywriter and not a, a fiction writer. I'm not a fan of that style of writing. I'm a big fan of understanding meticulously where does this need to go? Where am I trying to lead the reader? Because ultimately, that's what we're trying to do is lead the reader to a buying decision. So let's just jump into it piece by piece and, and let's start off the headline. I'm going to assume, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, when I'm writing a headline, I'm trying to do a couple of things. Number one, I'm trying to get their attention so they stop whatever they're doing and they pay attention. I'm trying to make a promise that grabs their attention. I'm trying to uh, clearly identify who this is for so that they know that they're the person that needs to be paying attention. And the biggest thing that I'm trying to do is sell them on reading the rest of the advertisement. Uh, am I missing anything on a headline that uh, what the job of the headline is? Well, I think you've described it pretty well. I would add something though. Let's say before they look at your headline, they're watching The Simpsons. And after they look at your headline, and Paul goes, well, they're reading your copy. So the headline needs to be a bridge between watching The Simpsons or whatever they were doing and what they're going to be doing, which is reading the next piece. Now, it it can't just, you know, first of all, not everyone's going to be watching The Simpsons, so you can't say, hey, stop watching The Simpsons. I got something to tell you about that's <laughs> going to keep you 
that's going to let you actually get a flat screen TV instead of the old tube. No, right. You, you, you don't want to do that, but you need to capture their attention in a way that's going to make them want to pay attention more to the headline and what's coming next than the Simpsons or, you know, the news they were reading on the internet or, you know, cat videos or whatever they were looking at Mm -hmm. or doing. And so in, in that regard, the headline has to be real. It almost has to be heart stopping. I mean, not literally, you don't want to give people a heart attack, but it needs to, it needs to really reach people in a meaningful way. A, a way that's meaningful to them, not meaningful to any person in the world, but meaningful to any person who's in your target market, who's a, pro, a qualified prospect for you. I've heard the term pattern interrupt. How does that fall into this? Yeah. So pattern interrupt comes from neuro-linguistic programming. And I think it was hijacked into first into, um, uh, VSLs and now into copywriting lingo in general, it's often a pattern interrupt is like something way out of the norm, way out of the ordinary, something so shocking. It, it, it'd sort of be like if you were walking down the street in most towns and all of a sudden, you know, a clown with a cowboy hat and a lasso shows up and, and he's, he's trying to lasso a parking meter or something and he seems very serious about it it's like that's outside of the pattern of normal people walking down the street what's going on here you know so i think some of the best big ideas are real pattern interrupts um there's one from agora financial it always comes to mind when we're talking about this stuff i don't remember who wrote it or what even what the letter was for but it was something like oil discovered under the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And the, the idea was not, of course, literally that there was oil in you know, the Parisian soil, but that <clears throat> there was something, some kind of opportunity for oil investment that had something to do with Paris or France, I think. I don't know. I mean, that's a pattern interrupt. You, it's... It, it, you know, in um, in the entertainment world, I think the equivalent world is, you know, the unexpected. When something out of the ordinary happens that you don't expect. For some reason, the scene in Jack Reacher, the movie comes up where Tom Cruise playing the character of Jack Reacher is in some bar in Pennsylvania and five guys take him on and he just dismembers them or dismantles them one by one. He just takes them apart. And you don't expect that. I mean, you know, he's a short guy and uh, these are huge hulking guys, medium height guy. My height, that's not short. It's like 5'9", five, 5'8". Five, so, yeah, the thing you have to be careful about with a pattern interrupt is if it becomes too memorable that people get stuck on it and they they can't smooth into your copy Mm. they can't transition in but certainly if i'm watching the simpsons and there's a a pattern interrupt about something entirely different i'm going to forget about the simpsons and watch that i think the key thing to know there is that you need to have a good transition that 
that takes that full attention of the person that you've gotten and transfers it into your main message in your copy. Okay. And I want to talk to you a little bit about transitions here in a bit, but um, from the headline into the hook and possibly the story, what's, what's the job of the hook in the story? Okay, good. Good question. I think it deepens what the headline does. So the headline gets your attention, but it may not get your commitment yet to really follow through reading or watching or listening to the message. The hook, a story at the beginning, its job is to deepen the meaning to the reader, increase the scope of attention, and really get the commitment, not to buy, not yet necessarily, but to spend time and attention and energy and maybe emotional energy for five minutes or 15 minutes or however, you know, an hour. It's a webinar that's an hour. And, and really give it fair consideration. Give the entire proposition, the entire sales message fair consideration. So a lot of people will throw the stuff in there mechanically. They'll throw in a hook or maybe they'll just copy something that they've seen somewhere else. But if it doesn't really reach the person's heart and doesn't have some intrinsic meaning to the reader, it's not going to do its job. So what I like to think is when I write the headline, one question I ask myself is, does this get the right person's attention? When I write my hooks, I like to ask myself, does this get the person invested? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think invested is is maybe a more business-like way of of saying committed. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the last thing you want is for someone to be taking a professional, objective, distanced approach to your copy. That's not what you want. You want them invested. You want them committed. You want them all in. You want them engaged. And so, yeah, I, I like what you said there. Okay, so testimonials. What are the, what is, when people are writing testimonies, I see people mess up testimonials so often because I don't think they understand what the point of a testimonial is or what a testimonial is supposed to do for the reader. So when you're writing testimonials, number one, a lot of times, there's just a, my own thing. A lot of times when I'm writing testimonials, I'll actually write them with the people or I'll have them send me something and then I'll reword it and send it back to them and ask them if it's okay if I use my version because clients don't usually know how to write very good testimonials because they don't also, they don't know what the testimonial is supposed to do. So for the copywriters out there that are struggling with testimonials, what is the job of a testimonial? Man, that's a great question. There's, there's so many things a testimonial is supposed to do. So the first thing a testimonial does is I mean, the, the overall purpose of a testimonial is to create more conviction, more belief, more certainty, more confidence on the part of the reader, the prospect, the viewer, the listener, the, the person you're trying to sell to, to make them feel like, yeah, the, the, your claim is true, uh, your offer is valuable, and your, your proposition is real and and 
authentic and accurate. So, the, you know, then you get to the question of, well, how do you do that? And I think there, you know, it's a fine line between authenticity and art. You know, it needs to sound like a real person talking, but it also needs to stay interesting and be concise and moving forward enough so that it, you know, that it's, so that it's not entirely like a person talking. You, you ever eavesdrop on people and especially a couple of friends when one's telling a story and they start and they, you know, get about halfway through the story, then they go back to the beginning, they repeat themselves, and they go off on a tangent, down a rabbit hole, around the block. <laughs> Testimonial can't do that. Because uh, you could lose a person's attention. So, uh, boy, I, I don't know a, a shortcut for shaping the testimonial. Maybe you have some ideas on that. I, I, I'm feeling you're very good at it. But I, I would say that ultimately the testimonial's supposed to convince or reassure the prospect that this is a good idea to go ahead and buy what you're selling. Do you have a problem with Kindle books? I do. Sometimes I really just want to hold a book in my hand so I can turn the pages and highlight stuff and make notes. That's one reason I recently released the print version of my book, Breakthrough Copywriting. And listen to this. On Facebook, I've gotten pictures posted from around the world. Pictures of people holding their printed copy of Breakthrough Copywriting in their hands, including one from an A-list screenwriter and marketer in L.A.'s famous Topanga Canyon. He was reading the book in his hot tub. Breakthrough Copywriting is a great book for you, whether you are a beginner or an A-lister yourself or anywhere in between. It costs a tiny, tiny fraction of my $5,000 a head seminar that the book is based on. So check out Breakthrough Copywriting on Amazon.com. Now, back to the show. Have you ever thought of buying something and you have a friend who, who already has one and you call him up and you say, hey, hey, I'm, re- I'm thinking of getting these imported Polish pickles to have on my hamburgers. Um, and I know that you buy them. Uh, what do you think of them, right? I mean, maybe, maybe it's not Polish pickles. Maybe it's... Um, For me, it was the remarkable. I called you and I said, hey, David. That's right. That's the right. Remarkable. The remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that was a great example. And I think, for me, the remarkable was Jake Hofberg. I think when I saw Jake had it, and I said, wow, this, I, I have a feeling Jake su- does not suffer fools gladly, and he probably doesn't put up with inferior products either. Um, I mean, I don't even know him really well. I like him. We know each other a little bit on Facebook, but he started talking about this, and I said, I've been thinking about this. Now I want it. Okay, that's a perfect example of how testimonials work. For people who don't know, Remarkable is a tablet that is exclusively focused on using handwriting and you can write on PDFs or you can write and draw on it. Um, and then you can export it back to your computer and do all kinds of stuff with that. It's really good for marking up copy and so forth, reviewing copy. Anyway, when someone's reading your sales letter, the chances of them calling up someone else who has the product and, finding out about it are like slim to none. So you're simulating that experience. It's like a surrogate that goes in into that person's world for a little while. 
and they pop up and they say the kind of things that a person would say. That's why it needs to seem authentic. And often, I mean, testimonials can do so many things. You can use them to answer objections. I learned that from Mark Victor Hansen about 20 years ago. Works perfectly, works really well. Um, you can use them to explain things that are technical or new or different. Um, you can use them to talk about results, and you have to be really, 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 really careful with that, especially in certain industries. You can also use them to talk about emotional experiences of using the product, um, which is, I think, less regulatable. One thing that I like to keep in mind when I'm writing a testimonial is just understanding the way people are. We want to feel safe. We want to feel like other people have gone down this path before. We don't want to be the one that blindly walks off of a cliff. And when we're trying to buy a new product, that's a big fear. Is this the right decision for me? And what we, as human beings, what we tend to do is look to what the crowd is doing. We look to see if, it's, if other people like me have done it and they were happy, then that makes me feel like it'll be safe for me to do it. So one thing that I like to keep in mind when I'm, when I'm including or editing testimonials is, does this leave the reader feeling like it's a safe decision to make? Boy, that's profound. And that's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, ultimately, people like to act like they're so tough and adventurous, but, uh, and, you know, some are, but at the end of the day, I think you're, you're absolutely right. We, we all, especially when you're making a buying decision, you want to feel like you're not going to get ripped off or disappointed. Yeah. So bullets, this is something that I have struggled with. I still continue to struggle. I have a bunch of different templates of bullets that I use. But I think that, uh, and I don't want to project this onto other people, but still bullets are, are one of the things that I, I'm like, okay, the bullets need to pull in the attention of the skimmers. The bullets need to kind of be something that people can quickly glance at and see if it's something that's right for them. But I still, even myself, having been writing copy for five plus years now, I still have maybe a little bit of a fogginess about what the bullets are supposed to accomplish, what the job of the bullet is in, in a sales letter. Yeah, that's a good one because the bullets, they, they do a lot of things and they need to be able to do several things. Well, each bullet does at the same time, it depends on the reader. So some of your readers are going to be skimmers and some of your readers are going to be anal. They're going to be incredibly granular and detail oriented. And sometimes the same person could be one or the other or something in between, depending on the situation, a bullet and all the bullets together need to be able to appeal to both. So one of the important things about a bullet is they need to convey whatever it is, usually value or uniqueness or excitement, or um, they need to create urgency, whatever it is that you need to do to sell this product when you glance at them. For the more granular reader, the person who just goes through every detail, each bullet needs to stand up to scrutiny. I mean, you can have what my friend Bond Halbert calls blind bullets, which are 
you know, bullets that do not uh, necessarily reveal what they're talking about, but create a lot of excitement and intrigue anyway. But everything needs to be on this side of that line of believability and plausibility. In a way, bullets are as hard to write really well as headlines because it's like you're machining every word. There needs to be a rhythm to it. There needs to be excitement to it. There needs to be logic and believability to it. Um, And it, it needs to be very readable so you can just look at it and go, oh, yeah, I get it. If bullets are confusing, or and one of the, the things I see often is that people just try and pack too many ideas into them. If bullets have too many ideas or they're too complex, they're not going to ruin your letter, but they're going to, you know, you're going to miss some opportunities. They're probably going to lower your response. So what do you think about, and this is the one thing that I really try to do with my bullets is, kind of evoke a curiosity or create an open loop to where now they need to know the rest of it. So um, the ones, the classic ones that come to mind is like um, three foods you should never eat on an airplane or why most businesses fail within the first year and how you can avoid that common mistake where it, it teases something, but it makes it to where you have to buy the product to get the other half of it. I think, I think that's great. I think those kind, and obviously, um, my opinion in a dollar ninety five gets you a cup of coffee at Starbucks because. But, but what what you know, history um, tracked sales results will will show you that that that's what works. But but the other thing is sometimes let let's say uh, you're writing a product for someone who's starting a business and. One thing on their mind is, I'm not sure how I'm going to get the business license, and I'm not sure whether to have an LLC or a sole proprietorship or um, an S-Corp as an Inc. or a C-Corp, you know, right? They're going to wonder all these things. You can have a bullet that doesn't just factually spell that out. So this might not be a good bullet, like how to choose between an S-Corp, a C-Corp, an LLC or a, a sole proprietorship. But what you could do is say, wondering about whether you're going to choose an LLC, an INC, or uh, be a sole proprietor. Here are three things never to do and the five step checklist that will make sure you make the perfect choice. It's still just basically laying out a feature, but it's doing it in a way that's speaking. See, bullets can speak to the conversation going on in the prospect's mind too. The more you know your prospect, the more you know they're really uncertain. And and if you can promise them a checklist um, that's going to help them make the right choice, they might buy the product just for that. And one of the things a bullet can do is sell one bullet can sell a product all by itself, especially when you're dealing with information mm-hmm. or software where there's where you don't want to talk about the feature in in boring, ordinary, descriptive, purely technical terms. But if you can reveal the feature in such a way that it either excites or satisfies a, a desire or, or reassures a person out of their worry 
sometimes one bullet can close the sale that way too. Okay. Let's close the show with the one thing that uh, I see people making a huge mistake on very frequently. And I think it's because they don't under, again, they don't understand what the job of this is to do. And that's a PS section. I see PS sections are written so poorly, so frequently. What is the job of a PS section after you've gotten your whole letter written and you want to get their attention that one last time and, and maybe push them off onto your side of the fence? Um, what is the job of a PS and, and what are, what are the proper ways of going about writing a PS to accomplish that job? Okay, that's good. So it's a good question. And so I'll, I'll answer in several parts. <laughs> Originally, before sales letters, people writing letters would write a PS after they'd finished a letter. And of course, they didn't have computers. They were, maybe they didn't even have a typewriter. They were writing it by hand. Maybe they were using a quill and maybe it was on papyrus. I don't know. And then they remembered one more thing. Oh yeah, I you know I I I also want to tell you um, uh, the cow gave birth, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so that's that's where it came from. So a, a PS needs to read like, oh yeah, here's one other thing. That that's how it needs to read, and you need to write that way, but what it needs to do is different from how it needs to read. It doesn't need to be a dumping ground for, for your random wandering thoughts after you finish writing. It needs to be, it, it, it needs basically a lot of people will read a letter and they'll go to the end, see who it's from. And then they'll read the PS or they may go to the end to see what the price is and then they'll read who it's from and then they'll go to the PS. And the PS needs to be like a second headline, not as necessarily powerful and inflammatory and stentorian as, as a, a headline, but it needs to get the person back into the copy. It needs to state some benefit and create some curiosity, all the while seeming like it was just an afterthought. Oh, by the way, did you know Warren Buffett called me the other day and said, David, is this a good stock trade? Yeah, that's the kind of advice I give in blah, blah, blah. Mm. I just made that up. Warren Buffett did not call me. <laughs> there was, gosh, I can't remember if it was Perry Mason or if it was, it was one of those old TV shows that I used to oh, watch. Oh, I know. You mean Columbo, right? Columbo. There you go. Where he would be questioning people. And it would seem like the person got away with the crime. And then he would come in with one final question. And, uh, and totally, that one question would totally turn around. Explain that for the listeners. Yeah. Um, so Peter Falk, Colombo. God, that was so great. So he would ask questions. I mean, there's an example of he's, he's assembling you know, a whole case in his head. He, the, the, he's, and he's playing dumb. He sort of looked kind of goofy, and and he's basically setting a, a detective's snare, a trap, you know. And then finally, he says he he starts to leave. He said, "Oh, one more thing I want to ask you about." And he's what he's looking for is that linchpin or that one one tumbler in the lock to open the vault of guilty on the part of the suspect. 
So yeah, that's a that's a little different from a PS, but man, that was effective. That that was so cool. Well, the reason why I brought it up is because a lot of times if I have something that I think can do that, that's where I'll throw it in. If I feel like Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um I mean that that is a great uh, innovation um the colombo ps you want to you want to start to brand it and own it and copyright it and trademark it and <laughs> service market and and then put it in a vault no that's really that's a really good idea um and that's also by the way in a slightly different from a slightly different angle that's what a a great screenwriter will do at the end of the movie there'll be this one piece mystery and all of a sudden, everything gets recast in the listener's mind. It has a different meaning. I mean, I was watching something about the sixth sense, and there's that pivotal scene uh, where, you know, all of a sudden he realizes he's not wearing his wedding ring and he realizes he's dead. And everything, like, suddenly, you know, it's like these cards start, you know, dominoes start falling in a different direction all of a sudden. If you, I don't know how the hell to do that with a PS, Nathan, but if you do, God, more power to you. That's that's pretty good. Occasionally, and I, I don't usually add PSs to my sales letters, but occasionally I'll have I'll find something and it's usually like a bullet. And I'm like, if I save this bullet for very last, and the people that are still sitting on the fence, if I have this as the last thing that they remember before they have to make their buying decision, if it works, and again, I I don't really include PSs very often, but if I find one, that's usually where I'll put it is the PS because I'm like, okay, this might be the one thing that, that uh, like you said, causes, it's the last tumbler and it causes everything to unlock and spill forth. Yeah. Maybe there are a lot of people doing this. I've never heard anyone describe it or ever noticed that before. I think that's a great innovation. Usually <laughs> the idea is, just get them back in the letter because the sales pitch is going to do its job. But you're right. It it could be like that one killer point that's going to take them off the fence and into that happy place called Fireland. <laughs> All right, David, I appreciate you entertaining this conversation today. I know we kind of just went off the script, but uh, I think we, I think we uh, unveiled a, a lot of things that will be useful for the listeners out there. If you're listening and you want to check out more of the Copywriters Podcast, head on over to copywriterspodcast.com. Did you have anything uh, for the listeners before we're out of here? Uh, no, just that um, thank you for doing this. I, I imagine that there are all these people that if they had the courage, they would say, David and Nathan, your podcasts are too structured. Why don't you guys just talk once in a while? And this podcast, this one's for them. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, again, check out the Copywriters Podcast. And until next time, we'll see you later. Okay, see you later. If you found this episode valuable, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. That way you'll never miss a show.